So to recount a bit of what's going on in this gospel lesson you just heard, Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth starting out his mission and he's been invited to speak at the local synagogue. He starts out very well according to the text. He lived up to their hometown expectations. He won the favor of all the gathered there. Way to go, Jesus, you've got them eating out of the palm of your hand. The ratings and collection will go way up today. But then something goes terribly wrong. Jesus takes their goodwill and turns it against them, and at the end of his message, as you heard, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Wow. He must have really said something that ticked them off. With his hometown crowd, no less. Last week, we considered this same story, and I mentioned that I have a hard time imagining that scenario today on the corner of Park Avenue and 60th Street here. From time to time, I have said some things that have upset people over the last 32 years, although never has anyone ever, not has everyone gotten up en masse and stormed out. By and large, as you might imagine, I'm wanting to help build up a loving community. A la Paul's magnificent hymn read for us earlier, that famous peon de love. The more excellent way. Love is patient and kind. Love is never arrogant or rude, never irritable or resentful. You know, we we sentimentalize and romanticize these words to a fare thee well, but their beauty and their power are never, never diminished by time or place. They're actually extremely theologically robust, that chapter. For most thoughtful people, love does indeed seem to be the heart of the matter for living well. But one would think that if love were the heart of the matter, and if one were to preach that with some regularity, the crowds would be pleased, right? Like the initial response Jesus received. All would speak well of the preacher and appreciate the gracious words that came from his mouth. And the interesting thing is, of course, that Jesus spent a lot of time expounding about love. We know what's up ahead for him as he continues on into his ministry. He speaks all of the time about God's love for us, our love for God, loving one another, and so on. He puts some teeth into it when he said that no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, and then went off to Golgotha to do just that. This kind of love is not sentimental at all, is it? But then at his first hometown preaching gig, what went wrong? If he's all about love, what went wrong? Why did everyone get so exercised over this man whose message about love would lead him into a gruesome state execution? What was it exactly that got him into so much trouble? 
And here the story does get quite interesting because although the details are sketchy, what we do have of what he says next suggests that the crowd got angry precisely because of how Jesus understood the limitless bounds of love. Now remember, the Jews of his day were living under Roman oppression. They longed for the restitution of their nation, throwing off the yoke of the oppressors. We could imagine that in living under such conditions, their tribal identity was extremely important. In the pressure cooker of first century Palestine, the us versus them mentality was brewed piping hot. And though the details differ, we see a similar sort of brew in the same land today, 2,000 years later, don't we? Well, Jesus strolls into the Nazareth synagogue, a local boy made good, even a potential leader, and the crowds are impressed by his eloquent exposition of the Jewish scriptures. But then he does something they can't stomach. By citing at least two examples, he explains that God's loving care is not limited by Jewish blood. It extends even to their potential enemies, to Gentiles and potentates, people they would have despised. That's not too strong of language, because we know that because of how they were so filled with rage and wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. Later, we'll learn from his example that prostitutes and Samaritans and centurions and every sort of person is meant to be accorded the dignity that love prescribes. Everyone. In effect, he told them God's revolution was not a national call to arms, but a spiritual call to love. He referenced how in more ancient days God came to rescue the non-Jews even in the face of great Jewish affliction and the crowd then moved against him. So here's the irony. Here's the irony. The crowd couldn't stomach the size of God's love as Jesus expressed it. Surely God was theirs alone prescribed by their boundaries. They know who belonged to them and who didn't. Jesus challenged this thinking by using examples from their own sacred writings. He used words from their scriptures. And this enraged them because they already knew what those sacred writings meant. Well, we don't have to look very far to feel resonance with these sorts of themes of who belongs and who doesn't. As I alerted readers of my Faith Matters blog this week, the bishops of the United Methodist Church have called for a special meeting of the General Conference on February 23rd. That's just coming right up. General Conference is the top policy-making board of our church. And this meeting has been called to address the single purpose of evaluating the way forward for our denomination given the denomination's current restrictive policies around human sexuality. 
There's frank talk about schism. And the national media will be all over it. It's important you are informed. And over the months ahead, I'm thinking we will likely have decisions to make as a congregation. Over the last months, we've held several conversations concerning this development, which has arisen due to sharp division across the denomination. Many clergy and congregations, including me and Christ Church collectively, are on record as opposing the existing language in our discipline prescribing same-sex marriage and the ordination of so-called self-avowed practicing homosexuals. I have observed over the years that, unfortunately, these issues are often discussed and debated in a disembodied abstraction, depersonalized, often excluding from conversation the very persons being discussed. It is very natural to exclude the dreaded other from conversation that is about them, isn't it? Just ask Democrats about Trump lovers or Trump lovers about Hillary and you catch a sense of the deep tribalisms here. Well, friends, it turns out that Christchurch members have a tragic relationship with the matters under consideration. The vestry on the second floor, the vestry is reached by... Uh, you know that there's a hallway on the chapel side on the second floor that overlooks the chapel and sanctuary. Those of you sitting here can see it. That leads to the room that's called the vestry. If you've never been over there, it's worth just walking up there sometime. Walk through Roseanne's office and step in. It's a nice view of the chapel and sanctuary beyond. The room is comfortably furnished. It's a meeting space, but it also has the clerical vestments, so that room has been my launching pad for the past 32 years every Sunday. Above the fireplace mantel, a fancy plaque reports that the room was appointed and dedicated in memory of the son of the founding pastor, Ralph Sockman, who died at the age of 21 in 1940. Now, Sockman was a famous and highly respected elder of our church in his day, having served as NBC's radio featured preacher for more than 30 years. He was among the most famous people across the nation in his time, actually. He was the charismatic personality that assembled the people and resources that built Methodism's cathedral on Park Avenue in New York City. I didn't give much thought to this dedication until about 10 or 15 years ago when an old friend asked me if I knew the story of William Sockman's death. She was the aged matriarch of a family that had owned and operated an upstate resort for multiple generations. 
For more than 30 years, my family spent the month of August there since I was minister in residence, sort of like a chaplain. It's been a wonderful respite for us over the years. But now by coincidence, it turns out that Sockman's family also spent the month of August at this same resort 80 years ago. Like us, he needed a summer escape from the city for his son and daughter. My friend told of a terrible tragedy, something unexpected and startling. It seems that young Sockman fell in love with one of the men of the matriarch's extended family. Given religious and cultural conditions of the time, and young William being the son of one of the most famous men in the nation. They saw no discernible path forward for their love, so they created a suicide pact. William leapt to his death from his ninth floor bedroom window of the Sockman Park Avenue apartment just up the street, and his paramour ended his life by inhaling the gas in his kitchen oven. It was hard to hear and absorb that story when she was telling me, and frankly, it's still hard to absorb. And I am left with the knowledge that this tragedy is baked into the actual church building here. Each Sunday, I now notice the dedication above the mantle in the vestry as a perpetual memorial to our human failure to love as expansively, as courageously as Jesus did. In this way, it helps me stay focused on what matters most and recommitted to the Christ Church mission to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves and to understand actually the radical dimensions of what love means. And then there's one more coincidence. They had a son and a daughter. We had a son and a daughter. Have. And my son is gay too. He's a beautiful expression of God's grace and possesses great, great spiritual depth. And it wasn't long after I learned about the tragedy that he quietly told me how difficult it was to know that the denomination he had grown up in did not really want him. He said it quietly without vitriol. Just sad matter of fact. At the time, he was second year in seminary, discerning his future. Now, unlike how a former generation performed, Luke has been surrounded by love and acceptance by his family and this local church community. But some years have passed, and he's now on the vestry of a church of another denomination that 
fully understands who he is and his gifts, the gifts that he holds for them, and he's currently discerning his future with that denomination. What a terrible waste the church creates in its obstinacy. Christ Church has long been a reconciling congregation. We started that process years before I learned about the Sockman tragedy, but now serves, that tragedy now serves as a prod for me to get on with the program for restoring redemptive and compassionate regard for all those the wider church and culture have historically excluded creating, fully participating and creating the conditions for despair and hopelessness among those deemed irredeemably different. So, after the manner of Jesus. I try to preach the gospel of love. as best as I understand it. Preached and embodied by Christ, our namesake. We are Christ Church after all. Here's the thing. I am aware that the size of this love can terrify and enrage. We just read about that. And God's love can be destabilizing of current conditions and beliefs. But it's bigger than we are, thank God. God's love is bigger than we are, thank God. If it were not bigger, we'd really be in trouble. This astonishing love is what inspired Paul to write his beautiful hymn. And interestingly, he sent it to a Corinthian church that was mired 
in controversy. That's ironic, isn't it? That church was just a mess, mired in controversy. He called it the more excellent way. And so it is. But, friends, it is costly. It asks something of us. It's demanding. It asks us to become more courageous than we've been, larger inside than we've been, more open to God's grace than we've been. costly, demanding, and the only thing truly worth a life's desiring. <laughs>